0: Revelation 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. When's he going to wait? That's what you're asking right now. Is he really going to sit there for half an hour? <laughs> when was the last time you were silent for half an hour? Not a sound, not a noise. You were just quiet. The little lamb breaks the seventh and final seal. That final seal, the last fastener holding the scroll of the earth in foreclosure. We first saw back in chapter 5, through chapter 6, he's breaking one seal after another, but there was one hanging on, one holding the scroll together, and now he breaks that seal, and things are going to unravel fast on planet earth. But before they do, there is a tremendous, ominous, momentous silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is something that reminds me of the great difference between an earthly and a heavenly perspective. You see, from an earthly perspective, to sit quietly for half an hour is not easy to do, especially in this culture. From a heavenly perspective, 30 minutes is nothing. I mean, it's a blink in terms of eternity. It has no significance in terms of its length, but it does in terms of its depth. Because John is describing here a profound pause. It's one of the largest pauses, actually, that we see in all the goings-on in Scripture. There's a moment where everything goes full stop. And it's all the more impressive when you get the sense of what has been going on. So go back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. When John is first caught up into heaven and is able or unable to, to get this view of what's going on, he writes that out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Skip on down to verse 8 of chapter 4 which says that the cherubim there are saying day and night, day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. Down in chapter Five verse nine Now the the elders are singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us or them, them or us, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they, we, will reign upon the earth. They sing out, and I looked, John writes in verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing if you skip to chapter 7 Verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now all the angels who are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they all fall on their faces before the throne, and they worship God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we called this on Wednesday night a holy, heavenly, hallelujah, hullabaloo. (laughs) A bellowing, belting out of beatific blessing. A continuous, clamoring, cacophony of Christ-centered commotion. This is modus operandi in heaven. This is standard operating procedure, worship upon worship upon worship, and suddenly silence. It all stops. It must take something of supreme significance to silence this crowd. But let's draw back a little bit further. There are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. Very good. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Turn back there, will you, just for a moment? We're told that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, think with me, how did John receive it? So the revelation comes, and it's now for all of us as bond servants to hear, but it goes to and through John. Where was John when the revelation came? Verse 9. I, John, your brother... And fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John in exile would probably have an experience in his own personal private worship service more like the silence in heaven sitting perhaps perched on a rock, looking out over the Aegean Sea, all by himself, all alone. If he heard anything, it would be his own voice. Jesus loves me. This I know. All by himself, out there on the Isle of Patmos, John was in exile. Don't forget that. Don't forget the agency that Jesus uses to deliver this revelation. John in exile. John, old John, having been severely persecuted, in fact, by some accounts, they dropped John into a vat of boiling oil. And when that didn't kill him, he was segregated. Isolated, humiliated, at least from a cultural perspective. I, I don't think it was humiliating to John to suffer for Jesus, but for the Romans and the Greeks, they would look at someone like John and send him off. Just get him out of here. Shut him up. So he was expelled and left to die alone on Patmos. But what Rome used to restrain the man John, God used to reveal the man Jesus. You just can't quiet God. You can't silence the Lord. And listen, when you feel like John, when, when you feel isolated or estranged or even forgotten, remember this, that your isle of isolation may very well be a rock of revelation. That may be the place where you finally hear, where you understand what What God is doing, it all comes back to faith. You'll notice throughout the book of Revelation, we have not seen it yet, nor will we ever see it. There's not a single cry for help from John as he writes this letter. Now that's interesting. Not once does John write, woe is me. Not once do we get a sense of nobody cares, or even, even a get me off this rock. John doesn't talk about himself except for the experience that he's having in the Revelation. Why is that? I think a couple of reasons, probably more. But we know at least that John was enamored of Jesus. John in his persecution, John in his isolation is so enamored of Jesus, all he can do is talk about Jesus. Because to have eyes on Jesus lifts your eyes off your own wounds and hurts and pain. He's enamored of Jesus. And John, listen, John was engaged in intercession. So not only is he looking away from himself to Jesus, but he's looking away from himself for the sake of the church. John is there, verse 10 of chapter 1, in the spirit, or in spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet translation I believe John is interceding. I believe right the reason why we get Revelation chapter two and three, the seven letters to the seven churches is because John is interceding for the churches at that time that his concern is for the body of Christ that is suffering. John knew his suffering was the common Christian experience. to be a Christian in that world of the first century was to suffer and John prayed. He prayed. And as he prayed, Revelation. Why don't we know what God's doing with our lives? Why don't I understand God's plan for me? When you pray, Revelation. Don't pray, no Revelation. When you're quiet before the Lord, when we listen, we begin to understand what He's doing instead of what we want to do. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, Paul told the whole church, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Well, I don't know what to pray. Pray for the saints. I don't have any prayers in my head. Pray for the church. We need prayer. All of us individually, corporately, the body of Christ in this world needs to be in prayer, but needs the petition of prayer. We need intercession. Jude, verse 20, you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. I think there's a connection there. You want to keep yourself in the love of God? Pray in the Spirit not praying in the Spirit, you're going to have trouble keeping yourself in the love of God. And if you're keeping yourself in the love of God, guess what? You're going to be praying in the Spirit. You're going to be interceding for the saints. Because that's what you do when you're in the love of God. And Jude says, at the same time, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So really, there's a three-point sermon right there. Pray in the Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, and waiting anxiously for Jesus to come. Those three interact dynamically. John was praying. It's precisely what he was doing at the moment the revelation was given to him and then chapters 2 and 3, to them and to us. Because one man, alone, isolated, imprisoned, if you will, on an island, was interceding, was in prayer. So let me change the Beginning question, which was, when was the last time you were quiet for 30 minutes? When was the last time you gave the Lord 30 minutes of your full attention? When was the last time you spent a half hour in prayer? Now, now some do. And if you're one of those, understand, I, I, I praise the Lord. Yesterday, we had a, a number of women here. I was so pleased, Jackie, just to hear that there was a, a group of women that had, had gathered For years and years, I've told you before, and and she doesn't even want me to say this, which is probably why I'm going to. But for years and years, Jackie has shown up one Saturday a month to pray and has invited and invited and invited. And and sometimes she'll have one or two join her. Other times it's just been her. She's been faithful for, I don't know, 15 years, I think, just to be here praying. Yesterday morning, there was a whole group of women gathered here praying for a couple of hours. I know because Cheryl needed to get home, Jackie, and you kept her an hour longer than she said she was going to be. <laughs> when was the last time you prayed for half an hour? Just a half hour. Now again, some do and, and some do often. But, sad to say, it remains unusual even among Christians. To spend a whole half hour, but I don't have that kind of time. well, you know why we don't have that kind of time in the world in which we live? It's because there's a direct correlation between stillness and prayer, between quietness and trust, between repentance and rest. The Bible says in Psalm forty-six, ten: "Cease striving." And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Why am I so weak in my faith? Quietness. Stillness. Now aside from John... What prayers have we heard or seen so far in the revelation of Jesus? Well, look at this. Chapter 5, verse 8 tells us when He had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, so worship, and note this, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Chapter 6, verse 10. Here we have those tribulation martyrs. And they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're praying before the Lord. Or chapter 7, verse 14, where John is looking at these these people, these tribulation martyrs. He can't figure out who they are. And so John says... My Lord, you know who they are. And He said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Watch this. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. Where is prayer and that, hey, second only to sacrifice, the primary work of service in the temple, a serving priest, was prayer. If you are a priest before the Lord, either at the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem later on, your work consisted of Prayer. Intercession at the golden altar of incense. Sometimes I think a priest would even sneak in a little personal private prayer while he was in there. Hey, no one's watching. <laughs> and they'd go in, and they had to make sure and trim the lamps on the lampstand. And make sure that the showbread on the table of showbread was, was fresh every day. And they went before that curtain, this side of the curtain... The golden altar of incense right there in the middle and they would offer up incense and prayer before all the people. The people would gather outside. At the hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, they'd gather and they would be praying as the priest was inside praying and we see that that's exactly what Zechariah was doing. Or Zacharias, Luke chapter 1, just listen to this. It happened that while he, Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside that hour, at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, (laughs) I'll bet... And fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John the First Baptist. John the Baptist. So, so Zacharias, old Zacharias, and old Elizabeth had longed for a child. They're past the child bearing years. And Zacharias is in there and we discover from what the angel says that what he's praying for, he's actually not even praying for the people. He's praying for his wife. But he's in intercession for himself, for his wife, that they might have a son. And the angel appears and says, you're going to have a son. And what a son you're going to have. And his name will be John. He's in there offering incense. Now, I, I tell you that story So that before we go any further, you remember, you understand that the offering of incense in the Bible is synonymous with intercession. Incense, intercession. If incense is going up, it is a picture, a portrayal of intercessory prayer. Now keep that in mind. For back in Revelation chapter 7... As these martyrs of the tribulation serve and pray in the temple before the Lord, their prayers, like Zacharias' prayers, appear to be personal. Because we saw in chapter 6, they're saying, How long, O oh Lord? How long will you refrain? They're praying for justice. They're interceding for themselves and for their brothers and sisters who are also being persecuted for justice. And what's amazing to me is the divine response. The divine response that their prayers elicit. Verse 16 of chapter 7, They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. All of that... Leads us up to this very momentous occasion. This this pause, this ominous, tremendous, as we called it, heavenly silence. And so the question is: why? Why, after all the cacophony of praise and worship, does it suddenly cease? Why after all the prayers of the people does it suddenly go quiet? What's Going on three things this morning for you note takers. Just three. Recognition that the end is near is number one. Recognition that the end is near. And understand this. For all the study that we've been doing. We've been going through and and enjoying the revelation. I truly enjoyed studying through the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then being up in heaven chapters 4 and 5. And even getting into chapter 6 as things begin to break loose on the earth and the the horsemen come riding in and Jesus is breaking the seals and there's a sense of power and authority going on. But we come to chapter 8 and from here on out I warn you it's going to get heavy. The end is imminent. All heaven recognizes in this moment when everything ceases. It's a sense of that the end is near. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. It's been said that the breaking of the seventh seal is the most significant development up to this point. But what happens there is not just six seals. Whoa, look at all that. And then the seventh seal. Well, it's kind of getting ready for the next. No, no. This is huge. Because as that scroll now can be opened up, now can unravel. What follows the breaking of the seventh seal is the acceleration and escalation of the final events leading up to the return of Jesus. And when I say acceleration, I mean it goes fast chapter 8 opens up here on the precipice of what Jesus called the great tribulation. As though we're leaning out about to fall into it and seven angels, seven angels who are before God, some have called these the angels of the presence seven specific angels whose task it is to be right there before God. Well, there they are, and these seven angels are handed seven trumpets which portend the next two series of judgments. But follow this through. Think about it. We've just gone through in chapter 6 what we would call the seal judgments, and it took three and a half years for those seals to be broken and those judgments to come down. Now we get to the midpoint of the tribulation, and in three and a half years, you're going to get 14 judgments. One after another. The trumpet judgments come first, and then the bowl or vile judgments come second. And remember that five times in the Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And that phrase quickly, in taxi. He's coming in a taxi. And He's coming fast. And that means, in taxate quickly, it means revving up. It means when I come, when I begin to come, it's going to take three and a half years, and then all of a sudden, it's just going to explode. It'll go so fast. And you know that in your life, the more that's going on, the faster time goes, right? I mean, three and a half years is three and a half years, but across the first, things begin to unravel. Across the last three and a half years, it is like a slide to the second coming of Jesus. It moves very fast. Seal judgments. And then the 14 judgments of the trumpet. And the bowls. And then it's all over. And there seems to be recognition in heaven in this moment. In this profound silence. That the end is near. This is it. This is it. Now. I believe, and you all know this, in the, the plain sense of the Scriptures. That is, prior to this, the church is already caught up, is already raptured. That's the most literal sense of what the Bible teaches. There are other perspectives, I understand that, but to make other understandings work, you have to jump through some hoops, you got to allegorize some things, you got to kind of alter the way things are actually written, But the Bible indicates that the church is caught up and then wrath comes, and then tribulation comes. So what I'm saying is the church isn't even here. At this point in our study of Revelation, we're gone. We're home with Jesus. We are safely tucked away in heaven with our Lord. So you might ask the question, well then, why keep studying? (laughs) It doesn't affect us. It has nothing to do with us. It's like, you know, most Americans, we like to read news about what's happening in America, but we're not real aware of the rest of the world. We're just focused on what we're doing or what affects me right now or today or what do I have to do for this week. But you see, the reason we keep studying, the reason we're going to look at the trumpet judgments beginning Wednesday night, much less all the rest, is a warning. It's a warning. For all the world right now, John's documentation of the revelation and of all of these judgments, it stands as a warning, and maybe that warning is for you this morning. As we go through the book, those who are waffling in their faith or or uncertain about what they even believe or don't believe in Jesus at all. I don't know about you, but part of my intercessory prayer through this study, as I'm studying, through the week is that God would bring those who need to hear. You know, the full-on answer to that prayer would not leave room in this auditorium. If God were to bring all those who need to hear simply from Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island, there would be no room in this building for all who need to hear what's coming, the warning of what's going to happen. This is going to happen. Some of the things that we'll look at in just a moment. It's going to happen. All of these judgments will take place. There is no stopping this. There's no turning back from it. And all heaven is quiet because they recognize this is true. That the end is near. And the warning comes as Joel the prophet prophesied 700 years before Jesus chapter 2 verse 1 blow a trumpet in Zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming surely it is near and Israel understood that with the trumpet sound there's a warning there were different trumpet blasts and perhaps we'll look at this Wednesday night but, but when a certain blast of the trumpet sounded over all Jerusalem the people knew danger threat something's coming be ready And so we study the trumpet judgments because they are in and of themselves a warning. As God said to Ezekiel the prophet, this is Ezekiel chapter 33. If you want to turn back there, in fact, go ahead and do that. It's a little past midway in your Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 33. Turn back there. I'll wait in a moment of silence till you get there. Ezekiel 33. For the prophet says the word of the Lord came to me, verse 1, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, Well, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hands. Now that is serious business. What if God applied that? What if He completely removed grace and applied that to you and me? Because you see, if you know Jesus, if you know He's coming, you are a watchman. I am a watchman. And if we don't sound the alarm, at least according to this prophecy, if we don't sound the alarm and people are lost, their blood is on our head. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it is, but there is a motivation here of a sounding of alarm, of a blowing of the trumpet, of warning people you love, look, I've told you Jesus loves you, I've told you about God's grace, now I've got to tell you why it's so important. Because it's all going to come down. Because the Bible describes a time that will be absolutely terrifying, seven years, and then the end comes, and if you don't know Jesus, that's it. That's it. Can you imagine the silence in a family gathering if you shared something like that? Why don't we? Brothers and sisters, we are watchmen, we are watchwomen on the wall, and we are called to sound the warning. So let's sound the warning. I mean, we note that the sounds of the trumpets today, these are warnings. This is real. Go on back now to Revelation 8. This is coming. But get this, understand that even as the world passes the midpoint of the tribulation, even as the earth heads into the final three and a half years, guess what? With the trumpet blasts, God is still warning. This far into the wrath being poured out. Wrath of the Lamb going into the wrath of God. At this point, He is still alerting mankind that the end is imminent. He's still blowing the trumpet. As people are becoming more and more hardened by unrepentance, God still cares. He's still warning that the time is so short, it's running out. There is a point... Where the forgiveness of God ceases to be offered. It's the end. It's when Jesus comes. At that point, it's done. And so it's interesting to me that the second series of judgments are called the trumpet judgments, and trumpets are being blown because even then, see, I gave up hope long ago. <laughs> I, and I've told you before, Wednesday night, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I always thought that Jesus came and that was it and there were no second chances. Then I started to study Revelation and realize and understand, wait a minute, even after the tribulation begins, even after believers in Jesus are caught up, God is still pulling out all the stops to save anyone who would listen. That's the heart of God. He never stops trying to save. So these trumpet sounds continue to be warning, but understand this as we will see that these warnings are intermingled with Judgment. It is not just warning, it is judgment as well. Amos chapter three verse six says if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it. See, these are not just trumpet warnings, they are, they are trumpet judgments. They're warning that something far worse is coming, but even while warning, judgment is coming as well. In fact, the last three of the seven trumpet judgments are also called the three woes. And we'll see why. So the seven trumpets that are about to sound, handed to the seven angels in the presence of God, they are simultaneously, note this, they are simultaneously warning and judgment. Happening at the same time. You know, the discipline of a parent. A father or mother might spank a child, and the spanking is judgment. But it's also warning not to do this again. It's, it's warning to change the behavior. And that's what's happening with the trumpet judgments. What's different with the vile or the bold judgments is there's no warning. It's just pure, unadulterated judgment coming down. In fact, you can look at the three series of judgments this way. The first set, the seal judgments, are basically the fallout of the sin choices of mankind, leading into the wrath of the Lamb. It's our own choices, or, or humanity's choices, that bring it about. And then the trumpet judgments are the warning and judgment happening, and then the bold judgments are just pure judgment. But even in all of this, we see the grace of God as He's waiting, as He's calling, as He's trying to alert us that even down to the very last second, if someone would turn to the Lord, they would be saved. All heaven recognizes the seriousness of this moment. David Guzik calls this a sober, awestruck silence at the judgments to come. It's a truly somber recognition of the end but I think it's more secondly all heaven falls silent because of the realization of prayer verse 3 another angel came and stood at the altar now there are two altars quickly in the tabernacle two altars Or in the temple, there's the bronze altar of sacrifice that's out in the main court. And then you come into the holy place, and there's the golden altar of incense. That's the altar being talked about here. Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. He has a censer. Now, now the, the censer was like a, a golden chalice or vessel. And this would hold incense in it. And it was used by the priest to bring the incense into the holy place and to mix it with the fire that was already on the altar, thus yielding that sweet scent that would go up in smoke before the Lord. Notice interesting how Jewish all these things are censers and, and trumpets the golden altar and incense this is the time of Jacob's trouble but as this is occurring the, the Bible teaches interesting that all things that we see in the temple and you can study this out in Hebrews 8-10 through all these utensils all the fixtures in the Jewish temple they're copies they're shadows of true heavenly things shadows so what we see here in verse 3 is the real deal this is not a shadowy earthly golden altar of incense as in the temple this is the actual altar of incense in the temple of God before the throne of God in heaven on earth shadows in heaven the real thing shadows but Paul says in Colossians 2.17 the substance belongs to Christ the substance is Jesus. That is the substance of all these things in the temple, all the implements, all the furniture. The substance of all that is Christ. To turn our eyes to Jesus. Perhaps if the Lord allows when we finish Revelation and get to Genesis and back to Exodus and we swing back around in our study through the Scriptures, you're going to see very clearly how every single thing in the tabernacle portrays Jesus. is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substance. I had a young man just last week come up to me and say, Pastor Rick, I'm just wondering, I've been struggling with two things, baptism and communion. And he said, are these simply empty rituals, these church rituals, or is there some meaning behind them? Why do you do them? And he had noticed, because we take communion every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning. And we baptize as often as someone declares faith in Jesus, as often as someone desires to do it. We're baptizing people. And so he asked, what's the deal with this? Is this just emptiness? And we talked for a bit, and and I said to him something like this, not, not my exact words, but communion is no more empty than dining with a friend. I mean, if you would consider that empty, you're a waste of your time. If you come to the table and you're ignoring what's going on, yeah, there could be emptiness, but if you come to the table recognizing your relationship with Jesus Christ and, and with His body, it's rich with meaning. Baptism. Baptism is, is no less uh, meaningful than the embrace of a loved one. You know, there are those times where my kids are heading out the door to go to school and I give them a hug as they're going out and it's just ritual. No, Dad's hugging me. I gotta go, Dad. You know, and off they go. And it means nothing to them. So I'm standing there weeping. Oh, my kids. It's all about the heart. And all of these things that were in the temple, all these copies, all these shadows, they have their meaning, their profound meaning in Jesus Christ. He is the substance. As you worship, your words can go up empty or they can be full. It depends on where your heart is. And if someone's baptized and they're thinking about what they're going to have lunch after, for lunch afterwards, then yeah, it's an empty ritual. But if their eyes are closed and they're considering the embrace of God as they die to self and are raised to walk in a new life, wow, is there anything more profound? The substance is Christ. Remember that in your faith. The substance is always Jesus. And if you're finding emptiness in what you're doing, draw back and look at Jesus. And think about Christ because He will put the substance back in to what you're doing. Now, back back to Revelation 8. So, notice this. In this moment of silence, heaven is silent but not frozen. In other words, not at a standstill. There are still things in motion. As everything quiets down and everyone is expecting what's to come, we see the trumpets being passed out. In the silence, motion is going on. Preparation is taking place. We see this angel coming with this golden censer and being given incense to put onto the altar. Things are happening. By the way, this is just my personal opinion. But when we are gathered at public events and someone says, let's have a moment of silence, I roll my eyes every time. A moment of silence? What is that? Let's be quiet for a minute. Okay. It's just stupid. We used to say let's pray in public gatherings. Let's open with prayer. See, there's meaning there. You're talking to the Lord. A moment of silence because we don't want to offend by actually speaking the name of Jesus. Well, then we're non-offensive, but we're also completely vapid. Utterly empty. We're just going to spend the next 30 seconds to a minute in silence. Well, that's just dumb. And I don't mean to be disrespectful if you're if you're at a like a military funeral and someone says a moment of silence, for me, that's a moment of prayer. My son takes taekwondo, and they start off every beginning of every class, the, the upper classes, with a moment of silence. And I sit there going, Oh, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, strengthen David's little body not to get hurt. You yeah, know, I mean, whatever, but I, I just, I don't get a moment of silence. In this silence, things are happening. In this silence, as trumpets are being passed out and incense is being offered, prayer is rising. So a moment of silence without prayer, that's ritual. That's emptiness. But the silence of heaven where prayer is taking place, look at verse four, and the smoke of the incense, With the prayers of the saints went up out of the angel's hand. Do you think when Zacharias went in to offer the incense that he expected a conversation? No, I think he expected, and they always would expect silence. I think, personal opinion, that the offering of incense for a priest was probably the best time of the whole day, the sweet hour of prayer. They didn't go in there, you know, ringing bells and tooting horns and playing guitar. No, they went in there and in silence before the Lord offered the incense. In silence before the Lord offered up prayers. As I said, there was a sense of silence even in the courtyard while the priest was in there praying. Sweet hour of prayer. David wrote in Psalm 141 verse 2, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up my hands as the evening offering. Incense and intercession. Intercession and incense. I actually have that written in, by the way, and you might want to do that in your Bibles right above incense in verse 4, right? Intercession, because that's what it means. That's what's happening. Incense is offered. This is incense intercessory prayer. And John here, witnesses, writes down about that moment when the prayers of the saints rise, get this, and are accepted by God. That's the picture in the incense rising. Adam Clark writes, the ascending of the incense shows that the prayers and offering were accepted. Wait a minute. Does that mean that there are some prayers that are unacceptable? Does that mean that there are some prayers offered up before God that He does not hear? Psalm 34.15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. But Proverbs fifteen twenty nine says, "The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous." Proverbs twenty eight verse nine. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. People think they have the right to pray. Yeah, I just pray about it. Not a big deal. Cast my words out to the universe for some good karma. See if it all comes back to bless me. By the way, in response to heartless, soulless, hypocritical, ritualistic religion, God said in Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. What I'm saying here is, yes, there are prayers that are not heard. There are prayers that are... Reju- it's not like Jim Carrey in... What was the movie that he was in? Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. When he, he he gets the role of the divine, so he's in charge of answering prayers. Do you remember the scene? And so he decides he'll just have all prayers put on post-it notes, and all of a sudden the entire room is just like... Post-its everywhere. So he figures out, well, I'll just answer yes. And he has them come in like an email form on his computer and just answers yes, 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 yes. And the world starts falling apart. Everything comes unglued. Now, that's a a good object lesson. But there are prayers God does not answer. And there are people God does not listen to. Why? Why? Because sweet, fragrant prayer is offered up and it is received in honest relationship. If you're walking out of the marketplace, you're at the grocery store or the mall or something, and you walk up to a complete stranger and just start talking to them, do they pay attention to you? Or do they tend to try and get away as quickly as possible? Now, I've tried this. (laughs) And I don't know what the deal is. Is it my face? You know? Go ask someone's opinion on the stock market. See what they do. You know, if they don't know who you are, that's the point. People think, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just pray about it. Well, do you have a relationship with God? Does he know you? Prayer offered in honest relationship. Now, someone might ask, well, so are you saying that God doesn't hear the prayer of a sinner? Hey, if God didn't hear the prayer of a sinner, no one would get saved. Of course God hears a sinner's prayer. If it comes with genuine repentance or humble confession, but all the prayers that rise from the earth in material self-indulgence, no. It's a waste of time. God is not a wish-granting genie. He's not a rabbit's footer, a lucky four-leaf clover. That's not how God functions. And prayer is not wishing upon a star. (laughs) Prayer offered in genuine faith and simple trust. Now God is listening and desires to answer such prayer. Hendrik Gruven, church historian, said the distinctive feature of early Christian prayer is the certainty of being heard. I really like that quote. That as an historian, he said, you see this in, in the prayers offered up in the early church. They knew they were being heard. They knew God was listening. They knew they were in communication with the Almighty. Do you? Perhaps the reason why someone will pray five or ten minutes and then just kind of burn out and go off and do something else is we don't really believe that God is listening. That we're speaking with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Prayer isn't a magical incantation. Again, that we cast to the universe. This concerns me because we have seen a shift in the last decade of prayer both in and out of the church, but especially outside the church, where one time in our culture, even a non-believing person would say, I'm going to pray about that. Or maybe we should pray. Or they would accept prayer as a legitimate means to seeking aid or help. Now, what tends to be the thing in culture is the universe. We'll just kind of cast it out like a message in a bottle. The problem is you can cast out all you want, but if there's nobody listening, what are you doing? It makes no sense. Prayer is personal personal communication with God who is Father. Now that's different than walking up to someone in the mall if one of my kids comes up to me and says, Hey Dad, i got a question for you. I'm all ears. I have a relationship. Prayer is is personal intimacy with Jesus, our bridegroom. (laughs) When my wife has questions for me or I have questions for her, we're all ears. We have that relationship. Prayer is seeking the help of the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor. Not our paid counselor. He's just our counselor. He's there. Always. Which is why Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It was so sweet. The, the, the Shook family was over on Friday night, and their, their son, uh, Jude, was sitting there. We're around the counter, and we're about to have pizza, and, and Jude says, We should pray! Which I thought was great. you know. And so we all pause, and, and Ben looks at his son, who's the youngest one in the entire room, mind you, and he says, Well, Jude, why don't you pray for us? And he goes, <laughs> Look of utter terror. <laughs> But then he went, and he just started praying. And it was the sweetest thing in the world because it was just real. It was just genuine. He was just talking to God and thanking Him for the Crawfords, which I thought was great. (laughs) And for the food before, and all of that. He didn't know how to pray. He just prayed. And the Spirit interceded. As the Holy Spirit does with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now note again, the prayers of the saints now rise with incense. And the incense is synonymous with intercession. Again, like Zacharias in the temple. Intercession. This is intercessory incense. As Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore He, Jesus, our High Priest, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives, to make intercession for them. So as we intercede for each other, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, and Jesus is interceding. Do you realize how much intercession is happening before the prayer even gets to God? And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because some of the prayer that comes out of my mouth is rude. It's rough. It's selfish. It's it's foolish. The Bible tells us that our prayers get rerouted to and through Jesus. So that by the time the Father hears them, they're a fragrant aroma. They smell good. Some of what comes out of my mouth when I pray... I think if we, if we could really stop and hear ourselves sometimes, we go, oh, I did, that's not what I actually meant, Lord. There are times I, I realize that, this when, I, when I'm praying for us to, um, to hear the Lord and, and asking for Him to teach us His Word. Sometimes I'm a little, a little bold. And I realize this after the fact. I hear myself saying, come teach us now, Lord, amen. As if, you know, He has a responsibility to come teach me now. I am commanding you to... No! <laughs> Sweeten my words. <laughs> Mix my prayers with incense, Lord, so that they're sweet before the Father. And they're not coming out kind of stinky like they can for me when I haven't brushed my teeth. By the way, some people think that the angel with the censer here and the incense is Jesus. Now, the reason, and it's an interesting interpretation, it's a little tricky, and I want to tell you it is uncertain. Because Jesus is our great intercessor. He is the one who offers intercession for us continually. We understand that. So people see this and they go, oh, well, the angel. And the word angel can't apply to Jesus. It will later in the Revelation. It did in the Hebrew Scriptures. Angel, angelos, just means messenger. So there are those who say, well, Jesus is the messenger here. It's a little wonky because Jesus just broke the seal. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is presiding in all authority. And this says, note this chapter eight, verse three, verse uh, beginning of verse three, another angel came. Another angel in the Greek is Alos Angelos. Mark, check me on this. I think you're gonna catch it. Alos angelos." Alos in the Greek means another of a different kind. This is an angel of a different kind. This is not. So, Alos Angelos, another angel. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm completely wrong on that. Let's flip that. Let's add some incense to it and make it right. It doesn't mean another of another kind, it means another of the same kind. Another of the same. Alos, another of the same. An alos angelos. What's just happened? We've seen seven angels handed seven trumpets and another angel of the same kind now comes up to offer the incense. Jesus is not of the same kind. Jesus is of a different kind. Not alos as in the Greek. Jesus is of a different kind than the angels. Hebrews 1.5 For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And Adam Clark rightly says, It is not said that the angel presents these prayers, he presents the incense, and the prayers ascend with it. Now as I said, there's a time later in Revelation where we see a mighty angel, and all indication is, it's Jesus. Probably not here. This is probably simply another angel of the same kind as the seven angels of the presence who stand before the throne of God. But whatever your view is on that, watch this, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is number 3 in your notes. The result of the prayers. The result of the prayers: booming thunder, crackling lightning, and a great earthquake. The word earthquake in the Greek is seismos, where we get seismic. But it literally means an earth tempest. Booming thunder, crackling lightning, and an earth tempest. And this is unparalleled. This is a global seismic disturbance. As the seventh seal is broken, the entire world begins to shake. The scroll is laid open. The angels position the trumpets near their lips to blow. What does this tell us about the prayers that have just gone up with the incense? What is this response? The answer to these particular prayers is judgment. Judgment. In part, it's possible that God is directly answering the martyr's prayers of chapter 6, verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God answers. Now listen, God's answers to our prayers rarely take as long as we think they do. I've been praying about this and God's not answering me. How long have you been praying? Since Wednesday. (laughs) Wednesday. We pray and we wait and we pray and we wait and we think, He just takes forever. You ever wonder about unanswered prayers? As we note this scene in heaven, and this glorious silence, this somber silence because of the recognition that the end is near. Because now prayers are being all offered up and there's a response to the prayers. And in this moment, it is a moment of prayer have you ever wondered about unanswered prayers i want to end with this this morning some look at chapter 8 as a whole altar full of all the prayers of all the saints of all history just waiting to thunder crackle and quake and so there's some who might tell you well the reason god has not answered your prayers is they're on the altar now the upside of that idea is hey that's cool God hasn't lost a single prayer and I think biblically we could say God doesn't miss any of your prayers offered up to him he hears you he knows so why hasn't he answered is it just because it all has to wait to this moment no no the truth is when I think God hasn't answered my prayers it's usually because he hasn't answered my prayers in the way I wanted him to and that's a different thing. So note this. Four answers to four prayers. Jot this down if you're a note taker. Number one. Answer number one to our prayers. God says no. No. This is what I would call the answer primarily to prayers of ignorance. God just says no. But God, I... Wait. No. Yeah, but I... No. <laughs> This is when we don't have the foresight to know even what we're asking. When we don't realize, I want this, I need this, but he's looking out in front of us going, No, you don't. If I grant this, you have no idea what's about to come. I wanted to be a rock and roll drummer. (laughs) In junior high. I believe I prayed that a couple of times. I wanted to play drums in a rock band. I to rock the world. What a mess my life would have been. I wanted to pastor a mega church. God put me in a barn. <laughs> it's all good. God says no because human eyes are short sighted. We don't know what He knows. So He will say an absolute no. Not a no waiting for a possible changing of His mind. No, He just says no. Can I? No. James, chapter four, verse three, says, "You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." And those pleasures don't even have to be sinful pleasures, they're just things we want. They're things we desire. We want to spend it on this, and God says, that's a waste of your time, energy, and resource. No. No, I love you too much to give you that. A second answer: No. Not yet. Not yet. A no of not yet develops prayers of patience. Again, the straight out no is an answer to prayers of ignorance. But the not yet develops prayers of patience. God says, not yet. It seems to be one of his favorite phrases. Wait for it. I'm waiting, Lord. Wait for it. You know what's great about the not yet in God's answer? it keeps bringing us back to Him. And all the while, while we're praying for an answer and we're waiting, He's waiting, and we keep coming back and praying to Him and the whole time, guess what's happening? (laughs) Relationship. He recognizes what we don't recognize. We keep coming back to Him and He loves it. We keep having conversation with Him and He's like, this is good. Let's let's just stay right here for a while. God, I need an answer to this. Not yet. Not yet. Because this is so good. You and me in this place for it because he knows how patience works in us. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. That's what... Patient prayer does. When God says, not yet. Colossians 1.11, Paul says, Be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So, no, God says to our prayers of ignorance. Not yet, God says, to our prayers of patience. Yes. Yes, is the third answer. Yes, God says, to our prayers of preference. That is, prayers that give preference to God's will in our lives. God says yes. My prayers align with His will? Yes. I'm, I'm praying that I might do what He desires? Yes. I'm asking for salvation for brothers and sisters that I might be used of the Lord to speak truth into their lives? Yes. Yes and amen. Amen. And someone might hear that and go, oh, okay, so for a yes answer, I have to pray whatever He wants. Let's do all the things God wants to do. (laughs) Yes! Exactly! Right on! Isaiah 55, verse 8. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are My ways higher than your ways, and My thoughts higher than your thoughts. So prayers of preference are those prayers where we're just seeking to align ourselves with the will of the Father, to think His thoughts, to walk in His ways, to do what He wants to do, because it's always right, it's always correct, it's always good. Three times in the book of Revelation, we hear or we declare that God's ways and His thoughts are righteous and true. Righteous and true, O Lord, are all your ways. Righteous and true, Lord, are your thoughts. And and that's why Jesus says, by the way, in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in My name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Yes! To ask anything in Jesus' name is to ask by His will, is to give preference to Him. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. And when I pray a prayer like that, God says, yes. Yes. But there's one more answer. God says, no. Prayers of ignorance. God says, not yet. Prayers of patience. God says, yes, when my prayers give preference to Him. Number four, God says, yes, beyond Anything you can imagine. Yes. Oh, you don't even know how big a yes you just got. These are prayers of abundance. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Abundantly more than we can imagine. And I'll be honest with you, when we had our first Bible study as the Bridge Christian Fellowship in the Gilmore's living room with 20 people, I had no idea that we would be here having two services on a Sunday. Now see, this is the opposite of this whole mentality, God, put me in a megachurch. That's stupid. That would have torn me up. But by the time we started the Bridge... And I can tell you this much, honestly. My prayers aren't always the sweetest thing in the world, but, but this much I can tell you. When the bridge started, I was at a place in my life where I could say, Lord, if you just want me to pastor 20 or 30 people the rest of my life, I'm willing to do that. If that's what you want. God got me to that place. That's a long story, I won't tell right now, but He got me to that place. Ripped the rug right out from under my ego and my arrogance, and He said, Rick, are you willing to just serve my people? If there's only 20 or 30 of them, then I need you to serve okay, all right. And He began to do something here among us that now it absolutely blows me away. What God has done in 15 years. What He's allowed me to watch take place and be a part of as we are together. And and it's so much bigger than that. See, what we're going to find out when we get to heaven... We're going to find out how big this really was. You're going to find out how big your little part in the whole deal really was. Brothers and sisters, you have no idea what you've done. Any and everything that you have done, giving preference to the will of God, the tiny little conversation, the the, the interaction over here, the investment in this place, you have no idea. The yes of God is beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. And did you catch what he said? Paul writing in Ephesians 3 said, beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power, get this, the power that works within us. The power of this unimaginable, beyond all comprehension, yes, is already at work in us. That thunder-shaking, lightning-crackling, earthquaking power, it's already in you. It's already at work there. Let that inform your prayer. When we pray, we know, we believe. God always answers. Sometimes He says, nope. Sometimes He says, not yet. Sometimes He says, yes. And then there are those times where He says, oh yeah. Yes, beyond what you even think you're asking, I'm about to do something amazing. He always answers, and God's answer is always right. Always. And in the kingdom, in the kingdom, He even promises us, Isaiah 65, verse 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. I've always loved that verse. You know what I think is amazing? <laughs> is that the Bible gives us proof of that verse coming to pass. It gives us an example in the very last verse prayer uttered in the Bible we see God anticipating bringing the answer before the prayer is prayed Revelation 22 verse 20 he who testifies to these things says yes I am coming quickly that's the answer and then John says amen come Lord Jesus that's the prayer the answer before the prayer that's how much God wants to answer your prayers brothers and sisters Let's pray together. again. Father, I pray first for silence and quiet in our lives. I ask for those moments where we will just listen. Where we will give space to Your Spirit. Where we will, like the beginning of chapter 8, even offer just a half hour of silence so that prayer then can be offered. And I pray, Father, that You would enrich the prayers of Your people. That You would mix our prayers with Your incense. And Lord, as we pray, would You increase our faith to know that You know wisely exactly what the right answer is. And help us to trust that. Lord, there is one prayer. One prayer that You always answer yes. You've said so. You've showed us again and again. One that is an absolute yes. And Father, that's the prayer for salvation. When a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When a person says, Lord Jesus, save me. You do you always answer yes to that prayer. We pray that this morning. Not just for ourselves, for those who are saved. We pray it for those who are not. We come interceding for friends and family around us. We come this morning, Lord, interceding for the neighborhood that surrounds this church. We come interceding for the neighborhoods represented by everybody in this fellowship, across Fidalgo Island and Anacortes. And across Whidbey Island, to Oak Harbor, Lord Coopville, Clinton. Father, we we pray on to the mainland. And Lord, we're not we're not asking that everyone saved of these prayers comes to this fellowship. We're just praying for salvation. We're praying for people to hear the name of Jesus. We're asking, Father, that there would be a driving back of the loud, clamoring, demonic voices. And there would be enough quiet in this area for people to hear the love call of God and be saved. We desire that, yes. Lord, we pray You would align our lives with Your will. Align our faith. Align our prayer. So we'll be praying in the will of our Father and knowing all the joy that comes of it. And Father, for this morning, anybody who is feeling unheard, anyone who feels like their prayer hasn't been answered, anyone who's struggling or or suffering or feeling persecuted or, or isolated like John on Patmos, Holy Spirit, I pray for exhortation. I pray for comfort. I just ask, Lord, that You'll draw us all near to You in genuine relationship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.